0: Good morning. My name is Courtney Ferguson and our Old Testament reading is from Psalm 73, 11-17 from the Message Version. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have made it, piling up riches. I've been stupid by playing the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I'd have given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear, your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I saw the whole picture. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Brian. Our New Testament reading is from Romans nine fourteen through 18. Are we saying that God is unfair? Certainly not. The Lord told Moses that he has pity and mercy on anyone he wants to. Everything then depends on God's mercy and not on what people want or do. In the scriptures, the Lord says to Pharaoh of Egypt, I let you become Pharaoh so that I could show you my power and be praised by all people on earth. Everything depends on what God decides to do, and he can either have pity on people or make them stubborn. The word of the Lord.
1: Hello, my name is
0: Matt. Please stand for our gospel reading found in John six sixty one through 68. Jesus knew that his disciples were grumbling, so he asked, Does this bother you? What if you should see the Son of Man go up to heaven where he came from? The Spirit is the one who gives life. Human strength can do nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are from that life-giving Spirit. But some of you refuse to have faith in me. Jesus said this because he knew from the beginning he, he knew Jesus said this because from the beginning he knew who would have faith in him. He also knew which one would betray him. Then Jesus said, You cannot come to me unless the Father makes you want to come. This is why I have told you these things. Because of what Jesus said, many of his disciples turned their backs on him and stopped following him. Jesus then asked his twelve disciples if they were going to leave him. Simon Peter answered. Lord, there's nowhere else we can go to. Your words give eternal life. The Gospel of our Lord.
1: You can be seated. What a delight it is to be up here again. every About twice a year, Glenn loses his faculties and allows me to come and speak, and I'm thankful for that, those moments nothing like an easy topic to prepare a sermon on, the problem of evil. Perhaps you've given it some thought in these last weeks, as it seems like so much has been going on in our world around us. And I I am at the same time hesitant to turn the news on, and yet have this terrible, um, macabre sort of desire to see what's going on, and, and, and yet it it genuinely disturbs me. Perhaps you're like me in that regard. Every one of us here recalls where we were on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. Am I right? I was in Morogoro, Tanzania, in East Africa. And because that was East African time, it was actually late in the afternoon, as opposed to here, where it was early in that that Tuesday morning. And I was teaching, I was on the platform, and I was teaching about 400 or so pastors. In fact, I remember we were teaching on the kingdom of God. And I was nearing the end of the session, and one of our colleagues, a man from South Africa, came up on the platform, which surprised me, and he pulled me aside, and I left the microphone, and he whispered, and he said, I will help close the session. You must go to where a TV is. Your country is under attack. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? And I... I went ahead, he insisted, and, and the meeting was almost over. So I gathered my things and I went back where we were staying. There was a little TV and it was able to get CNN International. And as I walked in, about 30 seconds after I walked in and saw it, I saw the first tower come down. And like all of you, I was, I was completely paralyzed as I watched over those next several days. And I was, oddly enough, as, as circumstances would have it, I was on the second plane a South African airline plane that was allowed back into the United States on the Monday morning after the attack and we flew into New York City. And a friend of mine who was right there working at Citibank in in lower Manhattan who had been right in the middle of it all met me. I saw the plumes of smoke. I actually saw some of the devastation of Ground Zero before coming home. And I proceeded over the next several months to go through New York several times and I saw it. And so, like you, it it, it impacted me so much to see 3,000 people, innocent lives, just taken out in those few hours. If I were to ask you, where were you on Sunday, December 26, 2004, how many of you could tell me where you were? There was an underground or underwater earthquake off the coast of Indonesia that caused such a great tsunami That in the matter of a couple of hours, over 230,000 people were killed. People from 14 different nations. And yet, because it didn't impact us directly, most of us saw it as a terrible tragedy a world away that somehow didn't impact us as much as 9 11 did. And yet, such an incredible loss of life, a hundred times, literally. In 9-11. In recent years, as many of you know, I I have worked with a mission organization and I've traveled to Africa scores and scores of times. And uh, over the years, I've traveled a lot to places that have had a lot of difficulty. I spent 11 years working in a massive Congolese refugee camp and places like that in Rwanda and Burundi and what have you. And I've seen These camps where tens of thousands of people literally ran for their lives from horrific violence, from civil war, from bloodshed, and are now living and trying to make life work within the context of of a refugee camp. In the last couple of years, my focus had turned to West Africa, and and I have been to Liberia, West Africa, numerous times in the last couple of years and made some very good friends. Surely you've seen the news. I've been talking with one of my dear friends, Pastor Peter, who helps us organize our pastoral training there. Numerous, uh, uh, at least a dozen people in his congregation have died from Ebola. I know a half a dozen people that have died from Ebola in the last month. People that I actually know. When we speak of the problem of evil, there's two immediate responses that I have. And the first is that term. You've heard the word problem of evil? The problem is we use the term problem. Because if you think of a problem, what do you immediately assume there is against that? A solution, an answer. One of the challenges we have in hermeneutics, hermeneutics is a big word. It just means how to approach the scriptures to understand them in our context, in our culture. And one of the first steps in that is you need to understand what the Scripture meant to the person who first read it in that original audience. Well, one of the problems we have in hermeneutics today is we look at the Bible as our answer book. In fact, we have people that call themselves the Bible answer man, which might be a tad arrogant, but nonetheless, I heard a seminary professor some years ago say something that I just... It rang so true. He said... The problem with going to the Bible and finding answers for today's questions is this. Sometimes the Bible is not answering my questions. I need to go to the Bible and find out what the questions are before I go to the Bible trying to find my solutions. And so in our Western rational, primarily Greek emphasis world that we've grown up in, we assume that to every problem there is a solution. Therefore, I need to merely uncover and determine the problem of evil so that I can find the solution to evil. After 9-11, we were all united as a country, and, and in many ways it was a very positive thing. But I recall when our leaders, I remember Pastor, or excuse Pastor, that was a slip of the tongue, President uh, Bush... When President Bush said, and, and it wasn't just President Bush, Prime Minister Tony Blair said almost the same thing. They said, We will find this evil and we will rid the world of this evil. A noble concept. It played well. Has it worked? Have we rid of the world of the evil? No, by no means. And I'm not saying there wasn't. The necessity of appropriate response, and that's, that's not what we're talking about today. But the problem is, and this is my second thought, the first is the problem of evil is that it's not a problem we can solve, and it's not a problem that we look to the scriptures for our answer and our solution. But secondarily, it's easy when we define evil as those things that are done by evil people to others to hurt them. We look at the horrors in these last few weeks of this group ISIS. And it's not hard to say that's evil. Because it's connected to people that are making evil choices. But isn't 200,000 innocent lives being violently taken in a matter of minutes also evil? I don't want to spend time on this, but if you've spent any time looking at the news about how someone dies from Ebola... You can only say it's a very evil, evil thing. So how do we deal with this idea of not just evil caused by evil men that inflicts suffering and pain on people, but evil that seemingly is caused by nature itself? In fact, in theology, we call it natural evil. There's human evil and there's natural evil. Natural violence. How do we... How do we deal with it? And most of all then, how do we decide who the bad guys and the good guys are? Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist and philosopher, and he wrote this about evil. He said, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of the world and destroy them. But the dividing line, excuse me, the dividing line, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You see, if I can say they're evil, what does that mean about me? I'm good. But what does the scripture say about that? No one is good, no, not one. Evil goes right down the heart of every human being, not down the political geo-boundaries of one nation or another. There aren't good nations and bad nations because nations are just political boundaries filled with people. And people have both evil and good in their hearts. People have hearts in rebellion to God and hearts that are in submission to God. And that becomes part of the challenge, doesn't it? So the first thing I would say to the question about the problem of evil, and this is all in my introduction, is that it's not a problem, it's something that exists. And the scriptures don't seem to be too concerned about giving us a clear western rational solution to evil as much as it does communicating to us how we as followers of Christ, as people whose hearts have been captured by God can see God, can meet God, and can be carried through by God in the midst of suffering and evil in this world. And so, I look at a riot erupting in Ferguson, Missouri, and it seemingly, the circumstances seem to be a young, unarmed uh, black kid who's shot by a white cop, and then we find out the kid did that strong-arm robbery, but then we find out maybe the cop didn't know that he had done the robbery. And then and all of this tension, and, and it's blowing up, and you see people saying, he was a good boy. But then you see others saying, I know the cop, and he's a good man. How often do you hear that? Some, some violence erupts, and they interview a neighbor. And what does the neighbor always say? I'm so shocked because he was such a good person. See, the problem is we're trying to, here's a word for you to take home bifurcate, separate. We're trying to say they're good and they're bad, they're righteous and they're evil. When that dividing line goes right down the heart of human beings, which is why we come to the table every week, knowing that our hearts are divided, in fact. So the conflict is not new. Here's the question that nobody wants to ask because. We don't have a good answer for it. How can a loving God allow such suffering and pain and tragedy to happen to innocent people? That's the question, isn't it? How many of you have ever been asked a version of that question by somebody who is not following Christ? Yeah. How many of you had the correct answer? Because if you do, I'm going to turn the mic over to you right now because I would love to know it. 300 years before Jesus, there was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus. And he wrote what has been called the God Riddle. And it bothers me because I don't have an immediate answer for it. And yet, this has been a concern of human beings for over 2,000 years. And it says this The God Riddle. Is God willing to prevent evil? But unable, then he is not omnipotent. Is he willing, excuse me, is he able but not willing? Then God is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then from whence cometh evil? And then finally, is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Ouch. Hmm. Anybody got a good answer for that one? That's, that's the question. That is the question. And yet, in a few minutes, I'm going to draw our attention back to the Old Testament reading, which is what we're going to use as our, as our ship, our vessel through this, this uh, difficult, troubled waters of, of considering this. But in part, the answers that we've often heard to the problem of evil are both predictable and to their credit somewhat helpful. And so uh, I'm just giving a real quick summary of what you've probably read or heard. There's three that I often hear. The first is that God created free will and which includes both human beings and angelic beings and rebellion against God caused the fall and its effect can be seen throughout creation. In fact, doesn't it tell us in Scripture? But what does it say about creation? Creation... Itself groans, groans for the coming of the Son of God, for the culmination, for the restoration and the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth. And so we understand at one point that God created free will, and with that comes the possibility, even the propensity towards evil. The second point is that God is sovereign. And even when evil occurs, God ultimately is glorified in his triumph over evil. And because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, ultimately God receives glory. And that's true. And then finally, the reason that Jesus died a violent death was not because God is a vengeful, bloodthirsty deity demanding human sacrifice, as uh, Richard uh, Dawkins suggests, the famous atheist, Not because of that, but rather the death of Christ was ensuring the victory over sin and death and evil in the world. And those are helpful in understanding it. But you know what? That doesn't help me when I'm overwhelmed by the evil and suffering itself. Does it help you? This past week, my elderly aunt passed away, and while it was not unexpected, of course it's still sad. At the same time, on Thursday, I attended a funeral for a couple whose three day old baby died. And we were sitting there staring at a casket this big. And my mind immediately went back. And I've shared this uh, a couple years ago when I preached, uh, when we were doing the Sunday night service at the main campus. And I told you about a little boy in one of the refugee camps where we've worked. And he was named after me. Uh, His father was a pastor. His name was Stephen. And I met him when he was just six weeks old. The next year when I came, I found out that little Stephen had died from malaria. And the family asked if I would visit the grave. And so I went to what is, I think in my mind, one of the saddest places on this planet. I went to a cemetery inside a refugee camp and a little wooden cross was there and I broke down and wept. I didn't know Stephen really. I just held him and, you know, got a few photos with him. But the reason I found myself weeping was because it was so wrong. It was so wrong that a little child would be born in a refugee camp And that same little child would be ravaged by disease and die and be buried in a refugee camp. And there was something in my spirit that just shouted out, that is wrong. That's not how God intended us to live life. That's not life and that more abundantly. And so I I, I see these ideas and I think they're helpful. But then I find myself wondering why does God allow these things now i have not personally f- experienced firsthand the kind of suffering that most people on the planet have like you i've led a, a fairly suffering and pain-free life but because of my my 14 years in mission work and in the areas i was working i've probably been exposed to more of it than many of you. And some of you, I, I know, and there's, we have a, a handful of mission leaders and missiologists and, and others here who know what I'm talking about and have probably seen more than I have. But, but I've seen quite a lot. And in refugee camps, in genocide sites, in Ebola clinics, and all these terrible, terrible environments and circumstances... It comes crashing in sometimes when you're trying to hang on to your faith. In fact, it was not that long after, or right around the time of 9 11, that having been exposed to so many of these things almost shipwrecked my faith. And someday maybe I'll tell the story, but God brought someone in in a, in a miraculous way, in a last minute change of, of flights and planes on my way to Africa. I found myself literally bumping into Pastor Jack Hayford who turned and asked what was going on and I told him and, and right there, he's talking about a mentor. Oh, what, a, what an amazing Holy Spirit divine appointment. But I want us to go to the scriptures. I want us to be like Peter who said, Lord, where else would I go? So I'm going to ask you, would you turn in your phones to Psalm 73? <laughs> See, Evan, I knew it would work. <laughs> that, was, um, that was a beta test for a, what will become a recurring sermon joke. And apparently it worked, so that was version 1.0. However, I did learn from the last time, how many of you were here when my iPad was locking up? Yeah, that was not a pleasant sight. So I've decided to go old school. It's called paper, and it works. Psalm 73. Didn't you love the message version of it? Is God out to lunch? What is the deal here? Well, we're not going to be reading, and I'm going to be using the NIV because I have an NIV. Uh, But I want to take us through a very brief journey through this psalm. And in verses 1 through 3, it begins by complaining about the wicked. They're always doing evil and always getting away with it. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They seemed to get away with it. They seem to, you know, everything they do turns to gold. He goes on, and in verse 3, he's envious. In verses 10 through 12, he says, Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? So these people, they, they mock and scoff at God, and they seem to enjoy their sin. Haven't you felt that way sometimes? You look at the, the unrighteous, the evil ones, as it were. Verses 13 and 14. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Have you ever thought sometimes, why am I bothering serving God when it seems like they have an easier life than I do? I just heard a murmur of uh uh-huhs. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But have you thought that at some point? It doesn't seem fair. I am trying to serve God. They are in rebellion against God and boy, it seems like they have easy street. So you can identify with with the psalmist, uh, with Asaph, as he's talking about this. And then in verse 17, I love this. In verse 17, he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary is where heaven and earth meet, as N.T. Wright puts it so well heaven and earth meet that's why we celebrate at the table every week because it's as if the heavens open up and God comes down and in the simple cup and the bread his presence come and we come to him empty you know we don't take communion here we receive communion and in receiving it We're reminded again of his grace and his love. So in the sanctuary where heaven and earth meet, then the psalmist says, aha, now I see the perspective. Verses 18 and 19, ultimately evil doesn't get away with it. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terror. It's like, yeah, they're gonna get it in the end. That sense of, you know, But you know what? Delight in my enemy's destruction never brings peace. It never brings peace. It never brings that sense of well-being like, wow, we took care of that one, didn't we? There's still, in fact, in verses 21 and 22 he just acknowledges that God's going to ruin him, God's going to wipe him out, God's going to clear the deck, God's going to make it right. And now, in verse 21, he says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, I was a brute beast before you. In other words, even after that, I was struggling internally, my own emotions were still just going crazy. Because it still bothers me when I'm, when I see this suffering, when I experience it, when I, when I question God, why? See, I think the biggest problem is this. We are asking the question, why? But God is answering the question, who? Who will be there with you? Who will take you through it? Who will walk with you? Who will lavish his grace and his love upon you? And while we're asking why, God is answering who? In verse 23 through 26, we have the final word. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, on earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. At your darkest moment, at your most difficult time in your life, can you imagine what it would be like without God? with the loneliness of thinking that this is a capricious universe where bad things just happen randomly and there is nothing we can do about it, as the scripture says, then we would be of all men most pitied. But rather, God answers the who. He will be with us. He will continually be with us. Who have I in heaven but you? Peter said, to whom would we go? Where would we go, Lord, if not you? Where would we go? At the funeral this last Thursday, the pastor that was leading it to the couple, they had three little girls and this was their fourth daughter, the one who just lived a few days. And I remember what he said. He said, he looked at them, they were in the front row and he said, every one of us in this room Our heart is broken with yours. And I wish we had an answer, but we do know and love God as you do. And we want to come alongside you and say, we'll be there with you. And we all stretched our hand forth and we prayed for them. And I like to think it was a tremendous comfort for them at that very difficult time in their life. A ministry colleague whom I admire, Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, is one of the leading Hispanic evangelical leaders in the United States. And he inspired this image that I'm going to use, with which I'm going to close, and he likely communicates it far better than I do. So if you've heard Pastor uh, Rodriguez preach and you say, Todd is a terrible plagiarizer, at least you know that I tried. He points to the cross, the symbol of our faith. You know, it's an iconic image, isn't it? It's two pieces of wood. One is vertical and the other is horizontal. There's no other symbol on earth that so immediately incorporates passion and promise like the cross. The agenda of Jesus is fulfilled in the message of the cross. In a violent death, he suffered so that our suffering one day will be no more. That simple symbol communicates the hope of Jesus to all humankind. And it conveys not just eternal life, but perhaps in the way that it's set up, both vertical and horizontal, it also conveys to us life right now. Jesus said... Except a man, deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. So in a sense, it is both vertical and horizontal. Life truly is vertical and horizontal. When we consider suffering and pain, we must consider that in the vertical, we are connected to God, and yet in the horizontal, we are connected to one another. In the vertical, we have redemption, and yet in the horizontal, we have relationship. In the vertical, we have holiness, and yet in the horizontal, we must have humility in the way that we treat and approach other people. In the vertical, we have kingdom, and in the horizontal, we have society into which we want to make a connection and an influence. In the vertical, we have righteousness, and in the horizontal, we have justice. In the vertical, we have salvation. And Horizontal we have transformation. In the vertical we have John 3.16 and in the horizontal we have Matthew 25. In the vertical we have Billy Graham and in the horizontal we have Mother Teresa. In the vertical we have the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth and in the horizontal we have Liberia, West Africa and Ferguson, Missouri. And yet, as emotions run high and people are screaming at their political leaders to do something about the problem of evil, let me say this. The problem of evil will never be solved by the left or the right, by the donkey or the elephant, but by the lamb. Amen. By the lamb who is slain for the foundations of the earth. That there might come a day when there will be no more crying, nor pain, nor mourning anymore. Because the new heavens and the new earth will be established and we will be in fellowship with God forever. And so let us come to the table today. As Peter said to Jesus, to whom else would we go? I can't answer the question why, but perhaps in answering the question who, I can point us to the cross. Solzhenitsyn said the line between good and evil does not go along political boundaries or ideologies, but right down the heart of every man and woman on the planet. So let us come today to God with our sorrow and our confusion. And let us say, God, we need to come to the cross. We need to find health and healing and forgiveness, and transformation, and all of those things that we might in turn be agents of your love and your grace to a hurting and dying world. Amen. You know, I don't know, nor does anyone in this room, the pain that you have in your life. In a crowd this size, I know there have to be some people here who are deeply suffering from some kind of loss. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship. Maybe it's a marriage that has been unraveling apart. Maybe it's the death of of a loved one or a friend. Maybe it's the loss of a job. I don't know what it might be. Maybe it's far more serious. And you've hid it from many of us. Because maybe you've had such a difficulty yourself coming to grips with how could this loving God that I'm trying to serve allow this thing to happen in my life. I want to tell you today, Jesus invites us to come. He invites us to come to the table. The early reformers referred to the table, to the Eucharist, as a means of grace. Not that we're saved by taking the bread and dipping it into the cup. None of that. Not that it's magic. But that in this humble posture of receiving from the Lord just as those disciples did on that night that Jesus was betrayed, we once again open up our hearts like a conduit to God's grace and God's love at the moment. And so for you that are experiencing the loss, would you likewise experience the flood of God's love and God's grace into your life at this moment?